0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcralaleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. of the Gospels, we read the account staggering, disheartening, and shocking that though God has sent His Son into the world to save the world, and though Christ has compassion on the world, the world at large responds to Christ with opposition and hostility. In the end of Matthew nine, we read this, that Jesus saw the crowds and was moved with compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. But here in Matthew 10, we read quite a different response. Would you look actually where our brother originally was in Matthew 10, verse 16, and see with me some of the things Jesus says will happen to those who follow him. Verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now down in verse 21. There we read, brother will deliver brother over to death And the father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And now verse 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, Jesus, Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? All four of the Gospels record this exact inflection point, where the crowds who once chanted Hosanna, then chant crucify him. Why do all sorts of people hate Jesus? There are, I think, three reasons that we have from the Gospel of Matthew already. Here's the first. Jesus exposes our sin and our need for outside help. The first word that Jesus shares in his public ministry, Matthew four, verse 17, is the word repent. To repent means to turn direction, which implies that your life was fundamentally off course. People hate Jesus because he says that we are actually going the wrong direction, to which many people respond, how dare you tell me how to live? How dare you imply that I'm not already perfectly doing everything I should be doing? Because Jesus knows how self-justifying we are, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five and six, he says, I know that you think you're good because you haven't committed adultery, but have you ever lusted in your heart? I know you think you're good because you've never murdered someone, but is there someone that you just are so sick of them, you just wish they weren't part of your life anymore? And in these teachings he exposes that we are in fact off course, but most people cut Jesus off before he shares the good news because he doesn't just say repent, he says the kingdom is at hand. It's not only that our life is off course, it's the good news that the king has come. But here let me just pause for a second. If you get upset with Jesus telling you to repent, the only implication is that you think you already are living perfectly. But perhaps there's someone who can accurately diagnose our imperfections for our own good. Jesus in his ministry will use a common metaphor of himself as a doctor, a physician. And he will say, I did not come for those who think they are well, but those who can accept the report that they are sick. If you are in fact dying, and a physician will not tell you the reality of your impending death, and he has the cure, that is very unloving. In fact, the most loving thing Jesus can do for us is tell us that we are under the sentence of death so that he can tell us that he has the cure. But the world hates Jesus because he exposes our sin. Number two, the world hates Jesus because he makes enormous claims that require us to extreme responses. If someone says a minor thing, the reaction is minor. But if someone says a major thing, the reaction is major think of some of the things Jesus has said already about himself. In Matthew 7, verse 22, Jesus says, in that final day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you, which means Jesus says that he is the judge of all humanity. How dare you judge me? Jesus is saying, I have the right to judge everyone. In Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8, there's a paralytic and his four friends take him to Jesus, and Jesus initially looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven, to which the crowd, the Pharisees especially, are very upset, and they say, who can forgive sins? Only someone perfectly innocent and divinely over all humanity could forgive sins. Jesus' response is, that's exactly who I am. (laughs) And so then he heals the man and makes him walk just to show that he, as God, has the right to forgive sins. Jesus forces us to extreme reactions. You can't have a mild response to Jesus. Either he is a lunatic and you run away screaming, or he is God and you run and bow before him. Third, people hate Jesus because he says that he exclusively provides the cure. See, Jesus is not a teacher who's come to tell us how to live better. Jesus is a savior who has come to save us. Jesus is not coming to tell us how we can reach God. He is God the Son come down to reach us. That makes him literally unlike everything or everyone else you'll ever hear. If you're a religious person, Buddhism has an eightfold path you can follow. Islam has five pillars. If you think of yourself as not religious, Jordan Peterson has 12 rules to live by. Oprah has lots of rules you can live by. Ben Franklin had a whole book on virtue that you can live by. If you say, well, I'm a very secular person and I don't believe in all those things. Yes, you do. You believe that your secular humanism will achieve utopia and that you must live a certain way to help achieve it. Everyone other than Jesus gives you credit and says, you're a pretty good person. Just try to steer your life this way and that'll account. It is only Jesus who comes and gives us absolutely no credit at all. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You cannot contribute to the cure. He alone is the cure. No one speaks that way. That is why people hate him. Jesus said this in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no exceptions ever, comes to the Father except through me. If those things make you angry, let me speak a couple responses. Jesus offended people in Israel, and his words offend people in the Triangle. Jesus offended people in Jerusalem, Jesus' words offend people in Raleigh. But if you're angry and you think Jesus is narrow-minded and bigoted, imagine all the people right now trying to solve cancer. Imagine one of them does. And they say, I have the cure. You may test that claim, whether or not you think it's valid, but you at least can't accuse them of bigotry. (laughs) It is not narrow-minded to have the cure. It is the reality. Furthermore, you may hear this often in our culture. Well, you know, you Christians, you're always saying that there's only one way and you're trying to convert other people to your position. Stop trying to convert other people to your position. And my response is, well, then stop trying to convert me to your position to not convert people. (laughs) You see, you can't have it both ways. Everybody has a truth claim that they want you to follow. It's impossible to avoid calling people to your point of view when you tell them not to share their point of view. So Jesus tells us who we really are, tells us who he is, and then tells us how badly we need him, and he doesn't pull any punches there. And for that reason, all sorts of people have hated him over history. And the hostility has met the moment. This morning, I want to tell you about One of them, Dr. Aiken at Southeastern, wrote a very helpful little book called 10 Who Changed the World on missionaries. If you don't know much about missionaries, I encourage you to purchase this book and be introduced to some of them. One of the missionary stories he tells us about in it is John and Betty Stamm. In 1930, John and Betty Stamm were college students at Moody, they were not yet married, they were at Moody in Chicago. And the following year in 1931, Betty went to China as a missionary now, ironically, John did not wanna get married because he was gonna to go to China as a missionary and he thought it was too dangerous and he didn't realize Betty had already gone anyway. So the following year, John went and John was in Shanghai and lo and behold, in God's providence, Betty was there in a hospital having tonsillitis worked done. And when John got to Shanghai and saw Betty was there too, at this point, they had to get married. <laughs> there was no getting around it. So they get married, they now are missionaries together And they decided to go to a very remote part of China where nobody else had settled as a missionary ever before. In 1933, after being married, they were relocated there. And in 1934, they had their first child, a baby girl with blue eyes named Helen Priscilla. It was in October. Just two months later, in December, on December 6th of 1934, that small town they were in fell under communist attack. China at that point was one of the most dangerous places for a missionary to go in the entire world, and many of their family members and friends had encouraged them not to go to China. But they had gone because they believed that Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And so when they went there, they were met with opposition. That afternoon, the Chinese Communist forces broke into their home. And demanded them to give them all their money. And John did give them all their money. And offered them tea and offered them courtesy. But that wasn't enough. And so the communist forces took their family and made them march for miles. When they took them to a secluded place, they had them write a ransom note that they sent back to America demanding 20,000 U.S. dollars for their release. The letter, of course, couldn't make it in time. And so the next day they were forced to walk 12 more miles up a hill. And after spending one night in an abandoned warehouse, the next morning, John and Betty Stamm were marched in parade in front of all of the people there who were gathered, and they were decapitated for their trust in Christ. Look again in verse 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Today's title of our sermon is A World of Opposition. Now you might be thinking, Josh, your story was about 1930 and China, and this is 100 years later, and it's the other side of the globe. Surely we won't face opposition here. Are you so sure? Do you think in the next 20 or 30 years, American culture will be more accepting of Christian truth as they are now? Do you think your children and grandchildren will be more embraced by American culture than you have been if they will be true followers of Christ? If you're not sure what the answer is, I'll read to you from Phil Zuckerman who wrote this in the Los Angeles Times this week. This week Phil wrote an opinion piece in the LA Times and here's the title of his article. Why America's record godlessness is good news for the nation. With a headline that provocative, you keep reading. (laughs) And here's his first sentence. The secularization of US society, the waning of religious faith, practice and affiliation is continuing at a dramatic and historically unprecedented pace in America. While many consider such a development as a cause for concern, such a worry is not warranted. This increasing godlessness in America is actually a good thing to be welcomed and embraced. Are you sure that our culture is so different from the 1930s that John and Betty Stan went to in China? Will we face opposition if we are faithful to Christ? The answer unequivocally from our own Lord's words is yes. Will we lose opportunities in our careers? Yes. Will we face hostility in our colleges? Yes. Will we lose status or position among our social circle and our own family? Yes. Now, I have never seen any of the verses of Matthew 10 on a Hallmark card. Never. (laughs) I've never seen a Christmas sweater that said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Never. I've never seen an Instagram post that said father and mother will turn you over. But brothers and sisters, perhaps the exact passages that Americans have overlooked, we now need more than ever. And maybe one day we'll come to love the truth in them. In Matthew 10, Jesus promises that if we are with him truly, we will be treated like he was. Now, with that proposition, Jesus gives three big encouragements, and there are my three points today. First, Do not be afraid. Second, do not be surprised. Third, do not be discouraged. I know that was a lot of intro. Now we're ready for the passage, okay? Number one, do not be afraid. Look in verse 26, please. Matthew 10, verse 26. One of the most repeated commands in all of the Bible. Verse 26 So have no fear. Jesus is telling you and me, do not be afraid of them, of those who oppose. Why? For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. There is no thing that anyone can do that God will not expose eventually. And also the truth that is good will shine through the darkness. Look in verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, the messianic secret. Remember all the times Jesus healed someone and they said, we want to tell people. And Jesus said, not yet. What Jesus used to whisper in the dark now say in the light. And what you hear whispered proclaim on the housetops. And these early apostles did. When John and Betty Stamm were told not to go to China, here's what John wrote in the 1930s. If we wait to go until all is peaceful, how shall the present suffering generation hear the gospel? We have our unalterable commission from him who gave his life for us. Do not be afraid. In case you didn't miss, do not be afraid. Jesus will say it again in verse 28. Look at verse 28. And do not fear. Do not fear those who could kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Brothers and sisters, no one on this earth has the power to take your soul. No one in this world has the power to alter who you truly and eternally are in Christ. Hell is a place that is real. It is a place of real torment. It is a place that we should have right fear of, but those who know God know him as a father. Those who do not know God know him as a judge. If you know him as a father, then do not be afraid of this world. Now, Of course I don't mean, and nor does Christ mean, that we should seek opposition in a martyr complex. He just made clear, did he not, if you're persecuted for my name's sake, we should never be persecuted for our name's sake. But if we are in fact to be persecuted for our, for Christ's name's sake, then let us not be afraid. If you feel threatened about someone who can alter your career, remember the God who holds the king's Heart in his hand and turns it like water. If you're afraid about how it may be for your son or daughter to be singled out in school, remember the Heavenly Father who is a father to the fatherless. May we sing along with Martin Luther who wrote, Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. John Stamm wrote, a letter to one of his brothers when he was a missionary, and he said, This take away anything I have, but do not take away the sweetness of walking and talking with the King of glory. So do not be afraid. Look in verse 29. Do not be afraid because of your Father's love. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Verse 31, here's the third time in about five verses. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus' point is simple. The most small things in the world, like sparrows, God the Father keeps track of. The most insignificant things about you, like the numbers of hair on your head, God keeps track of. He is good at subtraction in my case. He's keeping track but it's a reminder of his love for even the little things. Can I tell you a common response Americans have when hostility rises? We say, you know what, I mean, I believe in Jesus. I just, I don't need to tell other people that. I mean, I really do believe in Jesus, but I don't need to tell my coworkers that. I I believe in Christ, but I don't wanna talk about that with my neighbors, it's a very political season and everybody's already ramped up to nine, I should just keep it to myself. Uh, Look down at verse 32 then. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do you know that you cannot hide the light under a bushel forever and claim that you know the light? You cannot be silent when the Bible says whoever will confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord will be saved. You can rebrand it as civility, you can rebrand it as tolerance, you can rebrand it as well no one has the right to legislate morality, but if we're not willing to say the truth, then we're not with the truth. Now I do wanna encourage you, even solid Christians can temporarily deny Christ. Remember Peter. But don't forget that's not the end of Peter's story. He then was the first out of the boat to reconcile with Jesus and he got up in Acts two at Pentecost and preached an extremely bold sermon to those who had crucified Jesus. So we all may fail here, but this can't define who we are in the long run. Let me make this clear to us this morning. Faith is a personal matter, but it is not a private matter because truth is always a public matter. And the truth must be said. When they went back to John and Betty Stam's house in China, they found crumbled on the floor a poem that Betty had written. Here's what she wrote. Open my eyes in faith, I pray. Give me the strength to speak today. Someone to bring, dear Lord, to thee. Use me, O Lord, use even me. Number one, do not be afraid. Number two, do not be surprised. Look now in verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Now he is the prince of peace, but there's division before there's peace. So do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace first, we might add, but a sword. Sword is a metaphor for division. Verse 35, for I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. When the United Methodist Church was first debating whether or not they would deny their historical doctrinal standards on cultural matters, one of the UMC ministers in leadership said this, the only heresy is schism. And I immediately thought of this passage. According to Jesus, actually there is a time to divide. There is a time where truth requires division. Have you noticed before that when someone tells you, hey, you should just set apart your truth claims for the sake of unity? What they actually mean is, you should embrace my claims and be quiet. (laughs) See, when Jesus says he can't first bring peace until he brings a sword, the point is we have to be united around truth And that truth is who he is. And it's a dividing line. Now verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now we know that Jesus wants us to love our father and mother. He commanded it. And we know he wants us to love our children. He commanded it, so don't miss the phrase more than me. Now I never played football growing up. But I love watching it, though the Detroit Lions have almost taken away that joy. (laughs) So I don't know a ton about football, but I know this. There's something called a play-action pass. And in the play-action pass, the quarterback pretends that he's handing the ball to the running back, but then he pulls it back and he throws it. Now the reason he does that is there's this middle position of the defense called a linebacker. And the linebacker stands on his toes ready to pounce on the running back. But if he's able to get him to commit at the wrong time, then there's an opening for the throw. The point is this. When you choose to commit to one thing, you will, by definition, abandon all other good things for that moment. Now, there are many moments in life, hopefully, normally, we get to love our father and mother and children, but there will be key moments where they want to do something that is the opposite of what Jesus wants to do. And in that key moment, you choose one or the other. Jesus is saying that there are multiple moments in life where there's almost a sign that says this way, Jesus. That way, the opposite. And in those moments, you will find out what your more than is. In that moment, you'll find out which side you gravitate towards. Last month, we ran a Spartan race in Charlotte. And while we were finishing our race, my brother-in-laws and I, four guys, our wives and children and my mother-in-law and father-in-law went to Matthews, North Carolina to get ice cream where we were going to meet them. When they got there, my wife and my mother-in-law were walking to get ice cream and my mother-in-law unfortunately tripped. And when she tripped, she fell and she landed on her face and her chin cut open and she was bleeding down her face. My wife shared this story with me later and said that when that happened, she happened to trip in front of all places in front of a bar. And outside at the bar, people were drinking and a 20-year-old kid was pointing and laughing at my mother-in-law. Now, I thank God that the four of us who had just run the Spartan race were not there when that happened. Because after all the adrenaline we had going in that Spartan race, running with all these active military people, I don't know if that man would have ever laughed again (laughs) had we seen that happen. (laughs) In a moment where something like that happens, you learn something about yourself because your initial reaction is one you could never hide or never train. When someone does something like that, you either immediately rush to them or you're a little embarrassed of them and you immediately sort of distance yourself from them. There is no alternative. Listen, in your life, You may view yourself a certain way, we all do. You you may think, I'm a good person, I'm culturally astute, I'm on the right side of history, but when that moment comes where to stand with Jesus would be a cultural faux pas, what are you gonna do? When that moment comes where to stand with Jesus means that you're on the wrong side of history according to the majority, what are you gonna do? That's why he uses the phrase, more than me. You see, ultimately, your life is made up of what you really worship. And what you're gonna find out is that maybe you like Jesus, you're interested in Christianity, but when it's either this way or that way, you're not willing to stand with him. Now the reason I would happily stand with my mother-in-law is because I love my wife and I love our relationship. <laughs> it's also because I love my mother-in-law, and she's a great lady, and we would all stand with her mothers because of the way they care for us. Would it not be easy to stand with our Lord who left heaven to die for us? We're not asking us to stand with someone who doesn't care about us, but someone who has given all for us. Now look in verse 38. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Did you know that you can deny yourself all sorts of things without ever denying yourself? You can deny yourself certain privileges, certain rights, certain routines, but never deny yourself the right to determine what you deny. In verse 38, Jesus is saying, if you won't live a cruciformed life with Paul, if you can't say, for me to live is Christ, whatever he wants is what I want, where he wants me to go is where I wanna go, what he wants me to listen to is what I'm gonna listen to, how he wants me to raise my family is how I'm gonna raise my family, I'm gonna do what he wants, that's what it means to die to self. Not to cut a couple things out for a couple months. It means to cut out the very root of who I am. You see, the issue is not accessories, but the poem Invictus, have you heard that poem? I am the master of my fate. I rage in the night. No, that's exactly the opposite. See, we don't need pruning. We need to be replanted. We don't need tweaks. We need rebirth. We have to completely take up our cross and die to self. Now verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Have you noticed in our culture how often we talk about finding yourself? She was just starting to find herself. Oh, he really was finding himself. He achieved this degree. He was rethinking his uh, entire approach to life. Maybe they have even a new name. They're really just trying to find themselves. Here, Jesus is saying, quit trying to find yourself by finding yourself. Find yourself by losing yourself and finding Jesus. This is what it means to actually find life. Now, if these metaphors bother you, then understand when Jesus talks about the cross in verse 39 and life in verse 39, these are the things that he gives up for us. We actually deserve a cross, he doesn't, but he goes to one. Our life stands condemned, his life is innocent, and yet he gives his innocent life for us who are condemned. This morning I wanna ask you then, have you ever found the life that Jesus is inviting you to find? Have you ever finally come to Christ poor in spirit and said, Lord, I know I can't lead my own life. I need Christ. Can I tell you this morning from Jesus this morning, if you try to cling to life apart from Christ, you're going to lose it anyway. So let go of the facade and hold on to Christ himself. At the age of 18, Betty Stamm wrote this in her journal. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and I accept your will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all utterly to you, to you forever. Fill me and seal me with your Holy Spirit. Use me as you will. Send me where you will. Work out the whole will in my life that is yours at any cost now and forever. Do not fear to trust your life to him who gave his for you. So one, do not be afraid. Two, do not be surprised. Three, do not be discouraged. Look in verse 40. Whoever receives you, receives me. Do you remember the first person who shared Jesus with you? You received them, you received their message, and then you received their Lord as your own. Praise God for that person. You receive them, you receive Christ. And if you receive Christ, you receive him who sent me, verse 40 ends. You receive the Father. Now Jesus will use a list of people you could receive, and the point in all of them is the reward is Christ himself. Verse 41, if you receive a prophet, because he's a prophet, you receive a prophet's reward. A righteous person, because he's a righteous person, a righteous person's reward, which, by the way, the reward is always Christ, verse 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple of mine, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Those who have Christ share Christ, and those who receive them receive Christ, and that is the reward. In the case of John and Betty Stam, those who received a literal little one received the reward. When John and Betty Stam's bodies lay there, on the cold mountaintop where they were left, they noticed the baby was not there. So after some time, a pastor named Pastor Lo in China came back to the area, discovered their bodies and then retraced their steps and went down the miles, the 12 miles that they had marched to the abandoned house that they were last in. And when he got to that abandoned house, he heard a faint cry. In the house, Inside of a sleeping bag that Helen had zipped, he found, or that Betty had zipped, he found Helen Priscilla, the baby girl. With her, he found several clean diapers, and in between the two clean clean diapers were two $5 bills. Pastor Lowe put Helen inside rice baskets... And with those two $5 bills, bought powdered milk and made the journey all the way up to the China Inland Mission there that was in China. And from there, he had telegrammed home to New Jersey where their family was, Stam, baby, safe. Helen ultimately was sent back with her maternal grandparents and she was raised initially in the Philippines and then in America. And when she went through college herself, she became a student minister for Christ. The shock and grief that accompanied the news of John and Betty's murders may have seemed senseless, it may have seemed horrible, like it had no purpose, but in fact, God used it to galvanize missionaries from around the globe to continue the work in China that they had been carrying forward. And when John's brother, Harry, who then became a missionary in the Congo, heard of John's death, Harry said this, how sad, and yet how glorious. How sad to think of the sin and hatred in the heart of man, but how glorious the welcome that was my brothers in heaven. When my brother and sister-in-law met their Lord and Savior face to face, think of the infinite tenderness with which Jesus said to them, well done, thou good and faithful servant. See, Jesus faced the world with compassion And the world, in the main, faced Jesus with hostility. But now Jesus asked his disciples to go to the world with the same compassion he had and to not fear or be surprised or be discouraged if they faced the same hostility that he faced. But let me encourage you with something Jesus doesn't say in this passage, but says in similar passages in the Gospels. He says this, No one has left anything, not houses or fields or lands or family that hasn't been repaid tenfold, both in this life and in the life that is to come. I want you to know something. When you feel like an exile in your own country, in your own culture, or in your own career, God in his grace has given you an incredible resource of refreshment in the other people in a room like this one. You might be surprised over coffee or over a dinner at your house how much you have in common with other brothers and sisters who are wrestling with the same things you're wrestling with but who also have the same resource of Christ and will encourage you with it. This morning, no matter what hostility may or may not come and may we pray for revival But if God allows a dissension away from truth in our country, do not be afraid. Do not be surprised. And do not be discouraged. Because Christ will still save. And he'll still reward all who put their faith in him. Let's pray together this morning. God, I thank you, Lord, that we do not need to lose heart. Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Jesus told us that in this world we might have tribulation, but he has overcome the world. That means that there will be many moments in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, where a conversation starts to move to a place that we know could go badly for us if we say the truth. And it matters when we speak, and it matters how we speak, and we need to be gentle as doves and wise as serpents. But we cannot deny Christ before people and we cannot try to hide the light under a basket. So God help us to point to him who gave up heaven for us, went to the cross that we deserved, and rose victoriously because he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and no one will ever make the Father apart from him. And it would be profoundly unloving if we would not tell the people we know that yes, they have a significant problem that we ourselves have, but there's good news. There is a cure and his name is Jesus. So give us the ability to say the truth no matter how unwelcome it is. And let us not be afraid. Our Father knows how many hairs we have and how many sparrows are in the nest. And Lord, help us to not be surprised if some that we thought would be among us end up opposing us. But Lord, help us to never be discouraged because there is a reward and it is Christ face to face. Thank you for people like John and Betty Stam and how they remind us of how you've done great things through normal people and you can do it again. Do it in Raleigh, Lord, and do it through Emmanuel for your glory. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcralheigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.